Yeah, and that's true. It's it's a warrior sort of sport, isn't it? It's it's uh, you know it's it's equivalent of boxing without getting punched in the face. You know, you're out there and you got to wear your opponent down, and you got to have your tactics, and you got to do it for as long as it takes until somebody comes out the winner. Look, I know people people who are listening to this might say, you know, oh, what's he talking about here? But I truly believe that tennis is is the toughest sport in the world to be successful at, and that's because physically you need to be out there for hours on end. Uh, Hey friends, Jeffrey Wu here, and welcome to another episode of the HVMN Podcast. Tennis is always going to have a special spot in my heart, as I grew up playing tennis and played on one of Southern California's best high school tennis teams. This week, I chat with a legend of the sport, Pat Cash. He's one of the greatest net players of all time, and he's won a number of high-profile tournaments, including a Wimbledon's Men's Championship. He's been a five-time Grand Slam finalist and peaked at world's number four in his era. He currently coaches top players like Coco Vandeweghe. Patton and I explore the evolution of tennis and how modern players are pushing the envelope more than ever. We also dive into the mental aspect of the game and a discipline required to wear down opponents over three, four, five sets. And we chat the current controversies in the tennis world. We also chat about Pat's explorations in optimizing human performance, including experiments with HVMN ketone. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Pat, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So where are you calling in from? We're in San Francisco and you're in... I'm in New York. It's uh, the middle of the US Open. So uh, I'm here right. at the US Open Tennis. So um, I'm in this, this year, in this capacity, I'm, I'm coaching uh, Coco Vandeweghe, who is uh, one of the top American players. Had a great year last year. So tennis just strikes a very personal core with me because I grew up playing tennis. Um, I grew up in Palos Verdes and Pete Sampras's high school tennis championship plaques were on my high school tennis wall. So it was cool to see that. And obviously I, like Lindsay Davenport and a couple of these other players grew up in the Southern California tennis circuit. So tennis player growing up and, uh, it's, it's cool to connect and, and chat tennis with, you know, someone with such a, a pedigree in the sport. So thanks for, you know, you know, I love to dive into, you know, the, the technique, the mental mindset, and also the evolution of the sport. I mean, clearly it's changed a lot uh, over your personal career and, uh, and I, I presume in your coaching career, it's very much changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and uh, funny enough, California has had a significant, uh, was, uh, was, uh, was really uh, significant in changing tennis technique for the modern times. Now, um, you, you, if, you know, if you know tennis, you know about various grips and yeah. there's a Western grip, which is, um, which is a, a grip that creates a lot of topspin uh, and it's for balls that are sort of bouncing up high. Now, all the players have, almost all the players have a almost semi-Western or a Western grip, which like Rafa Nadal and Federer and all the guys, they get so much spin. Now, that's, it was called Western grip because it was from the West Coast of America because you guys had hard courts. And the right. balls were bouncing high. So the only way you could do that was to change your grip around so that you could get over the top of the, over the, top of the ball and get, get a top spin. So most players now have that sort of grip. And Coco Vandeweghe is my, my player. And she's, um, uh, she's, Calif- well, she's originally from New York, but she moved back to California when she was little. So she's from San Diego. And, you know, she has a Western grip like, uh, and double-handed like everybody else. But back yeah. in my day... Back in my day, the, the courts were tend to be lower bouncing, uh, different bodies, certainly different bot type of bodies you would see on the players 
successful a lot in my day compared to now. Now, uh, Pete Sampras is a classic. He's sort of a he's old school, but he's also slightly modern. But he had massive legs. If you know, you've seen Pete Sampras, he you know his legs. He was so powerful. I mean, he had the right. greatest serve that we've ever, ever seen. He was an extremely powerful guy, but he was also very flexible. And um, now, and in my day, it was very short. The points were very short. The courts were quicker. The grass courts were fast and low. So it was almost like you were doing a sprint. You'd, do a, you'd be sprinting you know, for, for hours on end, but the bursts were very short, three or four shots, maybe five or six shots. Now the rallies can go on for 10 shots, 15 right. shots, 20 shots. So the body type of tennis players uh, has changed. You get these skinnier, wiry sort of players. Um, um, you, it's, Novak Djokovic is a, is a classic example. I mean, still the powerful guys like Nadal are successful, right. but you tend to get, you know, Venus Williams is a classic example. Tall, lanky, long arms, long right. reach, can run all day. So the body type of, of tennis players are just changing a little bit as we go along. But the great thing about tennis is it doesn't matter what your size is, or what your shape is, you can still have, you still be a good tennis player, and you got to be, you know, particularly good at right. It's, and it, things, of course. Yeah, I can imagine like kind of how people describe boxing or, or like mixed martial arts, like style dictates fights, right? And like different personal or different physiological body types adapt to different strategies and styles. So I'm actually curious. I mean, given the evolution of the sport, what would you say is an ideal body type? If you could have a Frankenstein, you know, yeah. you, you are God. You're designing the perfect body type of a player what would that look like would that look like a six four kind of a giant even is that even too short you're looking for someone that's a little bit shorter but a little bit stock like weight any any sense there well you know what we've found some unbelievable athletes that you know it's hard to say go past somebody like rafa nadal or novak Djokovic, but they're slightly they're different body types right. um, you know you got federer who tends to float across the court i mean he really is very very light then you've got Serena Williams, who is just pure power. So, but but as the, as we've seen the matches, the the rallies go on. Um, the body types, as I said, t tend to be a bit lighter. Um, so flexibility was always certainly important for me. Um, without sounding like uh, I'm big headed or, or or I was a smart, very smart, but I was very lucky in that I had some very good trainers who were very cutting edge and used to delve into different types of nutrition and you know we did a lot of flexibility a lot of strength weightlifting, various various things like that not heavy heavy weights but it was really about flexibility and strength at 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 uh on the on your extreme so in other words when you're really stretching out and you're in real trouble you have to have some strength when when you're stre when you're out stretching and you see these guys that can do that certainly the equipment has helped them a lot but um, you know, six foot three, uh, who can run all day and is wiry with strength, and that's probably a Novak Djokovic type of body, really, to be honest. Um, but but you know, who can say that Nadal's had some injuries? He, he to, to me, Nadal is like a uh, he's like the Ferrari, you know, the Lamborghini, where you can you can hear, you can really hear him come coming around the corner. He's powerful and right. and he's and hits the ball incredibly hard. But he might he got, break down a few times to, yeah, every now and then. That's right. He's always, <laughs> he's always in the workshop. He's always in the workshop. And then you've got Federer, who's the modern, almost like an electric engine. It just floats around. So, uh, but, you know, it's, it's um, the, the, the greatest changes, I suppose, in, in tennis have been uh, nutrition over the years, but also recovery. Recovery has been phenomenal. And that, that's, 
for, for professional athletes of all, all types, it's really about recovery. And that's just changed massively um, in, you know, in 30 years, obviously. 100%. I mean, I can definitely echo that from the different engagements and conferences I've been in in the athletic world and the military world. And I think we can, we can, we can definitely dive into that. But before diving into the physiological side of things, I want to just rewind into your history a little bit. Um, you, as a, as, a, as a kid, what, what gravitated you towards tennis? Um, what's your personal journey here? Well, um, I, I just, I, I liked all sorts of sports. I mean, actual fact, I grew up, my father was back in those days, wasn't really professional, but professional Australian rules, rules player for the, um, one of the top teams in, in my state, which was the, the premier state in, in, uh, in Victoria, um, premier state of football in Australia. So he played played football, but he just played socially with mum with mum to play uh, play tennis. And um, but I was, I suppose, I was one of those kids, um, lucky kids or kids you hated. But uh, <laughs> I was sort of the, the 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 captain at cricket. I was the best football player. I was the best sprinter at school. I, I sort of did every, did I was good at everything. Um, I suppose. I wasn't so good at school, though. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, don't, you can't not, have it you're all. You're out on the field. You're just running around, being athletic. You can't have it all, okay? But, so I was pretty good at sport. And uh, and so um, I just picked up tennis, and I thought, well, this is great. This is a sport you can play all year, uh, where other sports, you know, you play a season, and then you have an off-season, and you play something other sport or whatever. But tennis I could play all the time. And, and it got to the stage where... Uh, I could start playing against the men at the age of sort of 13 or 14. I was playing against the, the, the men in, in the state and, and beating them. And then I had the opportunity to go overseas uh, and travel and play uh, against, the, against the other kids. Mainly Europe was, the, was, was um, where it was all happening and still is. Uh, but there was a splattering, of course, of American players, you know, the Connors and the McEnroe's, Chris Everett, who changed tennis. But, you know, Bjorn Borg changed so much about tennis. He just changed European tennis significantly with double handers backhand so um you know when i got a chance to go overseas and 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 play these junior tournaments in these mystical places called wimbledon and you know roland garros the french open and and uh, juniors at uh, you know here in new york the us open um you know there was it was i was sold i said okay this is great i got you know, i absolutely got beaten up uh the, you know the first year or so but uh you know you learn pretty quickly when you get you know, playing in that sort of level of tennis. Yeah. So was it when you were around 13 that you realized, hey, I have a special knack for tennis. I'm competing at a quite a high level. I'm beating men. Um, I should double down, like forget about cricket, forget about the, you know, the, the four sport, you know, you know, the, the high school jock sort of stereotype. I'm going to just be a tennis player. Yeah. 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 Well, tennis players weren't regarded as, as much, you know, we were kind of regarded as, uh, uh, sissies or whatever, you know, it wasn't a man sport. It wasn't rugby. It wasn't Aussie rules. Uh, but I, I didn't care. You know, it was, it was, to me, it was, a, it was a very cool sport. And, and yeah, I had to, I realized I had to specialize at the age of sort of 13. I had to 14, I had to start, start specializing and, and put a lot more time if I was going to compete with these kids that, that were beating me up for the first couple of years. And, uh, you know, we, we came, came back as a junior team um, in Australia, we didn't have any funding back in then. They, they sort of, even though Australia is one of the mo- is, has a, one of the Grand Slams, so it's regarded as one of the biggest tournaments in the world, one of the biggest four tournaments in the world. And but yeah, we didn't have any funding back then, um, so we had no funding for juniors. So we had to 
we, as I said, my coach and uh, my father and a few businessmen put the money together to send us overseas to get some experience. And uh, it, was a, it was a shock. The, the first day that I arrived in Europe, uh, I went on the court with my, with my other fellow Australian and we, played a, we were playing a national competition and we were hitting with this, this kid. We just, you know, they sometimes put you on a court. They just said, I'll go out to court 15 and, 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 and practice. So we sort of went out to court 15 and there was, there's a kid there and we started hitting it with this, this kid and, uh, and this kid wasn't missing. He just literally wasn't missing a ball. We'd play for 20 minutes and he'd miss like two shots. And we sort of looked at each other. I looked at my friend and I went, oh my goodness, this is just some, this is, that, this is the standard of every kid. This kid is just, who is this kid? We never heard of him. Uh, as, as it turned out, it ended up being Mats Villander, who, uh, as we know, he, he, won, he won a couple of US Opens, about three French Opens, Australian Opens. So he became one of the, he was one of the greatest players of all time. But we thought he was just a normal kid, just some, <laughs> some random, random kid that was just thrown on the court with us. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> it's funny as Mats and I have been great friends ever since. But, you know, we, you had to start specializing. And, and that's it. Uh, but also, I had a background in other sports. You know, as I said, I played basketball at school. I played. I was athletic, running, cricket, whatever it was. So I had this really good background in competing in those levels. So when I got into tennis, uh, I was a competitor. I was a good athlete, and you know, I, I blossomed pretty quickly. Yeah, I think one thing that I'd like to get your thoughts on is that. You know, a kind of similar background, but obviously never got to your level of depth here, but played a lot of sports growing up, but then tended to focus on tennis as I played high school, et cetera. And one of the things that struck me with the sport of tennis is that it's such a mentally scary sport, if you will, compared to something like a basketball or a soccer, where you have your 12 teammates and the pressure is not just on yourself, grinding every single point, point after point after point for a couple hours, you know, some of the longer matches, three, four hours. Um, curious to hear if that struck you early, you know, coming from the cricket field when you had, you know, your teammates and your coach and a lot of breaks in the, in, in the game where on the tennis court, you're by yourself. Like the coach is not really supposed to help you and, and give you feedback. I mean, they're supposed to be observers. So it's just like you in your mind out resiliencing the other player that you're staring at for a couple hours. Curious to get your thoughts on that, and, and, and did, you, did that ever strike you and your thoughts around how did you build up the mental resilience? Yeah, it, it's true. It's it's a warrior sort of sport, isn't it? It's it's uh, you know it's it's equivalent of boxing without getting punched in the face. You know, you're out there and you got to wear your opponent down, and you got to have your tactics, and you got to do it for as long as it takes until somebody comes out the winner. Um, and that's the you know that is. Look, I know people People are listening to this might say, you know, oh, what's he talking about here? But I truly believe that tennis is, is the toughest sport in the world to be successful at. And that's because physically you need to be out there for hours on end. Uh, and if, if you've been in New York the last five days and you've seen what these players are about to go it's through. It's muggy, heat, right? It's muggy. It's unbelievable. Well, yeah. they, they build a center court here, the new Arthur Ashe, they build a roof on the center court. And it's, it's not a complete roof. It's, it's slightly open. So it's not air conditioned. They can't air condition it. So when it's when it's 95 degrees outside and it's humid and it's all cement, the air, the hot air doesn't go out. It stays in. It's just unbearable. And and the I didn't know I don't know how we I used to we used to play in these sort of conditions. But you know and we're sprinting around and doing that for hours on end and backwards and forwards and twisting and turning and and uh, all all that sort of stuff. And then. 
uh, in more tennis, normal tennis events, um, you have to back that up the next day. It's not yeah. you have four days off. You have to back it up the next day. And yeah. uh, and sometimes in the Grand Slams, the men are playing five sets. Uh, and if the if there's rain delays and the matches are backed up, they have to back it up day after day. And it's absolutely brutal, absolutely brutal. So, but it's a mental battle, of course, as well. Yeah, as you said, um, you don't get a lot of help out. You're not supposed to get any help out there, but. It's amazing how the the body is and the mind is. It's it's um, if you can if you push yourself to a, to a certain limit without breaking, then you are able to to keep topping that up all the time and, and a bit by bit by bit by bit. You can't expect a sixteen year old kid to come out. Occasionally it happens, like Boris Becker wins Wimbledon or Michael Chang won the French Open seventeen. Occasionally that happens, but. You know, not, it, it very, very rarely does it happen that some young kid can come out there and just be mentally tough straight away. Uh, it takes years to toughen it to become mentally tough, and to you're, you're adaptable, and you can you can literally handle the pressure, and then you can get off the court, and and you you do it like second nature. You know, you get off the court, you do your cool down, you go to you know you have your food, you go to bed, you, you get your game plan for the next day, and off you go. And um, and that's that's sort of the skill of being a, a coach or a player. To be able to, to deal with that, and, and the, the great players do that very very well, and the the other players who are, you know are up and down tend to have some form of weakness somewhere. Now it could be a forehand, could be a backhand, could be a serve, could be a second serve, could be a forehand volley, could be a backhand volley, could be speed, or could be agility, or it could be any element of, the, of those mental mental issues that we just talked about. And the skill level in tennis is just so extreme. And you've got hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of players all around the world wanting to be successful. It's a, it's the highest paid women's sport in the world. And so, therefore, you have very, very competitive women from all over the world. Men's, of course, you, you know, you get basketballers and uh, soccer players, whatever, paid a lot more. But in women, it's it's not. It's kind of like the, the highest paid sport there is. So, um, yeah, I suppose golf is just slightly behind that but uh you know and but for an individual sport tennis and golf for me are the two and then of course you know as far as the physical abilities uh or physical requirements um you know tennis is streets ahead of of uh of golf uh, not that golf's easy but uh you know you, you, they're not running around for four hours right and you're just so many less decisions and just interactions right with tennis like you're just making decisions like every few like every like literally second where the golf is like you take a swing, then you mentally recharge. There's not a mental break in tennis. Yeah, it's 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 funny because in many ways that's the less time you think, the better. For golf, for golf, I mean, you've seen. I don't know how many times you, you watch a tennis match and the guy's coming out to sit down to change events. He's coming out to serve for the match, and so he's got a minute, two minutes, a 30, or ninety seconds to sit down. He comes out and he's a nervous wreck. And he comes out and he, and he makes a double fault and makes a couple of mistakes. That's 90 seconds. Now, if you're putting for the U.S. Open or the Masters and you've got to wait five minutes for your for the, the other guys to putt, so golf, that's a different, it's a that's, slightly different yeah, skill. It's point taken. Group. I agree. Point, point yeah, taken. It's, point it's, taken. It works, both, it works both ways. Yeah. But it's both very, 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 very tough. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to dive into the mental aspect a little bit. I just remember one specific match. It was like a satellite open and I remember that I dropped the first set and usually in like very low level amateur 
matches. If you lose the first set, it's like you you lost like half the game, and and usually people give up. I I'm not sure in your experience, but like just what I saw typically, if you lose the first set, you're usually gonna lose the second set and just like call it quits. And for whatever reason, um, I decided to like no, I'm gonna just like play. And maybe I just loosened up, and like then like I just saw the other guy fold when I one second set. He just gave up on the third set. I'm curious. In your experience, were there some of these like early matches that just you realize that being a little bit tougher, a little bit just grittier, um, did you see that kind of give you confidence or was your edge a physical edge? Were you just more physically gifted than other people? So kind of a two-part question. Was that, that mental game, did you learn some early lessons as a, as a junior? Um, that like gave you that mental edge to become, you know, a, a you know, a Grand Slam winner and you know, a, a, like one of the top, you know, tennis players in in your generation. Um, or would you say that your gifts were more of a physical? Like, what was your edge as a tennis player? Well, I, look, I think it's it's a a bit of both. Um, I think um, I think there's an element of luck in it as well. I mean, some players have very sort of strange techniques, but they're so physically gifted that they can get away with it. For instance, John McEnroe is a classic example, and actually Roger Federer, um, two of the greatest players we've ever seen. But technically, you wouldn't coach the way that they play. Normal people could not play that way. You could have a very talented athlete, and you do have had plenty of talented players who've come in and sort of copied these players, but they can't do it. They're freaks. They're freaks. So in many ways, uh, you know, and then the same thing with, with McEnroe. He's the only guy I've ever seen, I've ever played against, who can completely lose his temper and yet come back and have it not affect him. Uh, the next point, the very next point. I've never seen a player completely lose a temper and yet no problems, snap out of it or just be so angry they refuse to lose a point and, and uh, they, they play well. well um, so, look, it's, it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing. At this level, the U.S. Open and this sort of, it's particularly in the men, you're, it's it's a bit like a marathon runner putting saying one mile. I'm just going to stay with this guy for one mile and wait for him to crack. And that's kind of like it was. You know, you, play, you go by the mile, you go by the mile. I'm just going to stick with him. I'm just going to stick with him. And then somebody will snap at some stage. And that that's the way you sort of have to feel. Okay, okay, we're going to the fourth set, no problems. Going to the fifth set, something's going to, somebody's going to snap and I'm just going to be there to take advantage of it. And sometimes the guys just hit wham, bam, bam, hit three winners, and you just sit there and go, well, that was just too good. And, you know, a lot of times I just you walk up and you shake hands and you say, well, you know, I played really well, but that was just too good, you know, too good on the day. Yeah. So how about you personally? Like what was your edge? Like when you, you know, were competing, at your, you're at your peak, like what did you think personally was your edge against the, the field? Well, I think, um, I think mentally I think I was very strong. Uh, I had a lot of help. Uh, with the sports psychology was just coming in in my era, and and so I, I was had the opportunity, as I said, I had a bit of luck in my career. Found a great uh, uh, physical trainer, uh, sports science expert, uh, and I also got a great sports psychologist who was working, just started working with the Australian Olympic team, and I got in contact with him, and he gave me a lot of advice. We we travelled together a lot, um, so I was able to to learn a quite a lot of techniques um, and just through trial and error, you know, he would say, you got to come off after a practice session or after a match and 
we'd sit down. He said, uh, you know, you didn't do this quite well or you lost focus right here or what were you thinking? You know, you lost two break points and then, you know, I could see you're, you're steaming up and then the next game you didn't play well. Don't you think you're a bit too, you know, and, we, and it, again, it's just trial and error. There's very few 16-year-olds can do that. So, you know, there's the age of 21 that I started working with this guy, 20, and, and then by the time it was 22, I was, you know, at my peak and won Wimbledon. But I was also very extremely quick. Um, so playing on the grass courts or a quick quick surface, I could cover the net very well. Um, so an, an attacking play, that was, that was pretty much the way the Australians grew up. We grew up as attacking players. And um, I, because the courts have changed and the strings have changed and the rackets have changed, it's it's almost a dying art where really there's very few serve volleys anymore that are successful in singles. And it's uh, to me, it's a pity, but that's the way, that's the way it goes. It's uh, the evolution of tennis. Good or bad, I think most older players would say it's bad and, and older people say it's bad, but uh, we've lost an ex a real aspect of tennis, a real element, a skill set in tennis, which is around the net play and tactics and touch. touch. But, you know, you can't argue with some of the fantastic tennis that's out there. It's, it's uh, magnificent. Yeah, yeah. So, like, as a contrast, like, heavy baseline, just people just sitting back, power shots. Exactly. Yeah. And for hours on end. And, uh, you know, I sit there, scratch my head, and I go... How on earth are they doing this? <laughs> Some of the stuff that Nadal does on the side of the court or Federer from nowhere is just like, wow, okay. I, we couldn't do that. We couldn't do that with the equipment that we had. We wouldn't even dare try it. If we did try it, our coach would kick us kick us in the head and say, get off the court. What are you trying? You're messing around. Uh, but these, these guys do that show because they partially because the equipment allows them to, but also they're just incredibly skillful. Yeah, so you mentioned in, earlier in the conversation that a couple of the biggest aspects of how the game has changed is recovery and nutrition. But it's obviously like the rackets have changed. You mentioned playing with a wooden racket. Um, now there's what carbon fiber, you know, all like you know all the different marketing language around like carbon nanotubes and all this stuff, right? Um, yeah, how about we talk about recovery first then? Um, yeah. Recovery and nutrition. Um, what was it like when you were 16, 20, you know, coming up the ranks? It sounds like you know sports psychology, you know, came into in, in, into into trend as you were stepping up the ranks. I mean, clearly, the sports business and the sports practice has, has become a lot more sophisticated. I mean, I think the way I think about it is that it used to be a bunch of like gentlemen or gentlewomen kind of hobbyists that were kind of talented and ended up like competing at like a gentlemanly sort of uh, way. And now there's like a real business, right? Like people can make a living and a lot of money doing this and. With money, people spend a lot more attention, fine-tuning everything. I imagine, you know, especially that's interesting into our community is that people start measuring all these biomarkers and biometrics. So, like, that might be on, like, the very, very cutting edge, maybe genetic testing, all this stuff. Um, so, curious to hear, you know, the latest as you transition into the coaching career, you know, managing and working with some of the top players today, how much has some of the techniques in the military and other sports translated into tennis? And, you know, what were some of the most impactful uh, movements uh, or developments in, in the sport since you were a player to now being a coach? Yeah, well, uh, as I said, I grew up, it's tennis, I mean, like, like all sports, they evolve. Uh, of course, in, the 19, in 1969, tennis became professional. And before that, it was amateur. You'd be invited. You'd, be, you'd travel overseas on a plane or even a boat and, and uh, with a team and, and you'd play the different tournaments and you'd. Then you go to the U.S. and the French, you know, clay court, then Wimbledon, and then go to the U.S. 
Um, then, of course, professionalism came in and players were able to make some money. Um, it's actually a really good documentary. If people want to dig it up, I'm not sure exactly how to get it, but it was from a tennis channel and it's called The Barnstormers. If you like tennis and you want to know, have appreciation for some of the, what, what the players used to go through, the early days of professional tennis, check out that documentary, Barnstormers. But these guys were basically outlaws. They were, they were regarded as, you know, really outlaws. How dare they play professional sport? Um, so they weren't invited to any of the clubs. They couldn't honestly go and play in clubs at all. So they were, they were trying to make a living. They'd, they'd put up a, a tennis court on a, on a, sometimes on a pier of a, uh, on, on a pier at a, at a, at a, in a town, uh, play on boards. They play on uh, literally on ice rinks. Put a little uh, matting across the top of the, uh, the an ice rink, uh, where their feet are freezing. Uh, they'd sleep in their car, their cars, and they travel together. And uh, some some ones that might waste some money, they could sleep in a hotel room or sleep with get to, get some family family to put them up. Um, and they the only way to make a living was to play nonstop. And they played these guys played five sets every day. Every match, they played five sets. Now we talk about somebody playing five sets. They go, wow, you know, they must be exhausted. These guys played five sets every day. And they said, there's only one way we can do this is we've got to put on a show and we've got to go 110% to show the world that this is legitimate tennis. And so these guys, the things they did, it's, it's a great documentary. But So when about my year, I, I first heard um, of, of Ivan Lendl, uh, Martin and Everett using this guy who was um, had, a new, had a, a new idea about uh, carbohydrates, uh, high carbohydrate diet would give you lots of energy and you could keep you could keep going. So it was carb loading, the beginning of carb loading. So that was 1980. I was going to say 1984 or five maybe. Um, and at that stage, I was just up and coming player. And I said to Ivan Lendl, I said, uh, you know, what uh, is this thing working? He goes, Oh yeah, I feel great. I have lots more energy. It's much better. I eat properly. I can recover. All that sort of stuff. So. Next thing you know, within a couple of years, every every uh, every tennis uh, tournament, and and you don't have your own special food. You just, you just eat whatever's there. Uh, it, it's nothing but pasta, 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 every, everywhere. And it's and it's still today. It's still you go somewhere they'll they'll have a big plate of pasta, pasta area. They might have some other meats or whatever. But you can't, on the road, you got to eat what's whatever's given to you, and you, and you try and find your way around there. So nutrition obviously changed massively, but you know recovery. When I was at, at Wimbledon, the the year that I won Wimbledon, as an example, there was one uh, tour physio and one local physio and a doctor, and that was it for 400 or 300 or so men players. That's all there was. Now, if you wanted to, you had an ultrasound machine. I don't, you're not, you're too young to remember the ultrasound machines, but that was. It was an ultrasound machine and a TENS machine, which is, you know, electric, electronic stimulation. That was about all you could get. And so if you had a bad shoulder and, and you would basically stand in the line, you go into the, you go into the, the, the trainer and you say, listen, I've got a match in, in an hour. Uh, can I get some treatment? He goes, yeah, yeah, well, either put your name on the list or wait because I've got to go, you know, Billy here, he's on in 15 minutes. Joe here, he's on, on, on 35 minutes. So if you're on 45 minutes, you come after him. And I'll give you a little, and the massage would be like, right, bit of, bit of hot stuff, Ben Gay or whatever on your shoulder, right, you, okay, off you go, and that's it. And then afterwards, you come back and be like, oh my shoulder, you go right. Um, see the esky over there? There's some plastic bags. There's the ice. Stick it, stick it on your shoulder. Okay, well, and we'll see you. We'll see you tomorrow. That was, that was it. 
that was it. I mean, I did a lot of stretching and people were looking at me, players were looking at me and I was doing agility stuff. People were saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, oh, I'm doing my agility work. So I was actually quite scientific uh, in, in, because I had a great trainer who actually came out from US college, Australian lady called Aunt, Dr. Ann Quinn. But so she did started doing all the agility work and, and, and scientifically we just did do, uh, you know, testing the quads and the hamstring ratios. And that was very pretty cutting edge, but that was about it. Uh, you know, now we know I used to have to take my heart rate in the morning, which I didn't pay any attention to. I didn't know anything about heart rate variability and all that sort of stuff, whether I was recovering or not. But now my player, you know, she wears this thing on her wrist and we know first thing in the morning, the physio has a look and says, oh, you know, she recovered really well or she didn't recover really well. Okay, we better take it light on the practice court today. Huh. Today was a classic example. So she heart rate it. variability probably. That was, yep, yeah, yeah, that was that was something we just literally did today. I said, we saw, I saw him on the way to, to the practice court and I said, you know, how'd she, how'd she recover? He goes, eh, not so, not so good today. I said, okay, well, we'll, we'll pull the practice session, make it lighter. So she, so she's ready for her match tomorrow. So, you know, but that's, um, and then of course the technology with the rackets and the strings, it just goes without saying that that stuff becomes more powerful and that that's changed tennis probably more than anything. But the recovery now, ice baths, everybody's on a, on a bike, uh, you know, after a match, cooling down. We never had any of that equipment anywhere. You know, we, it, there's, uh, we first time we saw a, bi a bike in a, in a, in a cool down room, um, I mean, Wimbledon didn't even have a proper gym until about four years, five years ago. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy to think, but now, you know, there's massive gyms. So recovery. Interesting. Yeah. So people are just flushing out lactate after a match. They're just like cycling, pedaling it out. Yeah. 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 You know, and then there's supplements now that call to take the lactate out out of your muscles, and uh, you know there's all sorts of stuff. They're very very strict in tennis with with uh, with with drugs and, and doping and and products. So players are quite wary. We're quite slow in tennis of taking bringing on something new, uh, and I think that's why it's that's an interesting thing for me with with ketones. I, I'm a bit of a guinea pig myself. Uh, back in 1988, uh, my again my trainer. Oh, 86, my trainer found out a, a, a place that would test your blood and test amino acids, and that was in Atlanta. So I used to get my urine and freeze it and send it over, get, take blood, send it over, hair, follow, hair samples, send it over to, to Atlanta, get tested and find, find out where my amino acid level, levels were. And they used to send back the most revolting tasting stuff. You'd mix it up, and it was literally, it was like glow in the dark, yellow <laughs> stuff, and you'd be like, oh, it wasn't like, like the powders you can get now with flavorings. It wasn't any of that sort of stuff. It was absolutely horrendous. But I also believe that helped me re recovery. But I was a little, still a bit old school where I didn't quite take on this. We didn't quite know about recovery and rest or I was stub too stubborn. I was just wanted to be the fittest and the fastest. And I felt that you could work, work, work. And rest was not a priority to me. And I got injured a lot. And once I got one injury, I got the next injury and the next injury and the next injury. I recovered from them all and I've learned a lot from it. And I think this made me a better tennis coach. But, um, but you know, that was um, – rest is very, very important. It's, it's really built in now to, to the daily and the weekly programs. Yeah, and I think that like opens up an interesting little side thread here, which is that I think the old school sport is exactly how you mentioned it. Just be tough, power through, power through, power through. And there's a lot more subtlety with ramping up and peaking at the right time. And with that ramp up process means slowing down, you know, having sure you have recovery. 
Um, and I think usually when people talk about that, this is in the context of like a marathon or like a track and field event where you can really, really just peak on one day or like one fight, right? Like boxing, mixed martial arts. You got to just kill someone on one day. But tennis is quite different. Tennis is almost is like I would say more akin to like a military deployment. You're kind of playing, you know, over the course of like a grand slam, a couple of weeks, uh, hopefully, right? You make it, to the, you, you win. You, that's it's like a couple of weeks of uh, of play time. So you got to be peaking for an extended period of time. And obviously, if you're going for like a military point, you're on the battlefield for like months at a time. Um, curious to see if that kind of adaptation and an optimization sort of thinking around training and recovery has made it into tennis or how does that apply to tennis? Because it's kind of atypical towards like a track and field event or a single yeah. event type sport. Yeah. Look, it's, uh, we actually just had Coco's trainers and, and nutritionists come in and I wanted them to come in cause I wanted them to experience exactly what the tennis circuit was like. Now they're, they're, they're a company called Exos who, who are around the, the U S and are very, very good. They do a lot of, yep. a lot of athletes. Um, and also do a uh, lot of military as well. Yeah, they do. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, they do. They're in Google and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So they're very, very experienced. And then one of the guys, head guys, uh, came in and, you know, he wrote out a program. He said, right, okay, we're going to get this serious. Coco's had a really bad year. Unfortunately, twisted her ankle. She got sick. It's one of those terrible years. We want to get to do well, quickly get back recovery. So he, he wrote out a program and he said, listen, this is the program, blah, 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 blah. I wanted to do all this stuff. We've got one of our trainers to come with you. Uh, I'll come up and I'll, I'll visit you, in a, you know, for, the, for a couple of weeks leading up to the U.S. Open. But this is the program. And I sort of just looked at it and went, um, good in theory. Yeah, we'll try and follow that. Within day one, it was out the window. Uh, Why? Because, was it too much? No, because tennis, 9.30, uh, you know, get up in the morning, have breakfast, um, do uh, you know, epilep, uh, uh, warm up in the uh, elliptical Liptical. machine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. elliptical machine. Um, you know, do ankle rehab, um, tennis from nine, you know, nine thirty to eleven thirty. Uh, lunch, brought the food in. Well, day one it rained, so there goes our practice session. Okay, where are we going to fit the practice session in? Well, something's got to give. Uh, okay, so we have to move everything here. Well, when's our lunch going to come? Well. Uh, well, we, can we put it in after that? Well, then it's too late. It's too close to dinner. We're in a re recovery session. So, and then, and of course, um, then, then you have, if the, it comes the Monday, the Sunday night, usually you have the schedule because the qualifying is on before. If it's been a wet day or whatever, we don't know who qualifies. The qualifiers, some have finished earlier in the day. They will play on Monday. The ones that finish long and late in the day, they might play later in the day or even the next day, on Tuesday. So they don't make the schedule. A lot of the time, you don't make get the schedule in tennis until 10 p.m. at night. In actual fact, you know, we're in the evening now, and I'm still waiting for Coke, for the schedule for the U.S. Open right now. And um, so, how are you supposed to plan on that? And he's sort of scratching his head, going, "I've never. This is really tricky. You've got to be really adaptable." I said, "Yeah, well, that's kind of tennis as it is, isn't it? Every every point, you got to adapt and you got to change. And there's a bad line call, and the the wind blows, and the opponent hits." So it's a tennis is an amazingly adaptable. Uh, you have to be a, a adaptable to to do that. But we try and you know stick to some form of rules, some form of uh, uh, format. But it really, only in the men, in the women, we have they have uh, two months off at the end of the year. In the men, they don't even have that. They have a month off. So you have one month to work on your technique to get fit, 
So do your, you get in the gym and do your, your, your base strength work and then get straight back into agility because within a month, you have to tear around the tennis court. So if you want to get in the gym and build something up, you haven't got much time. You've got three weeks uh, for, for a lot of these players. So a lot of the stuff is done on the road and adjusting, and it's, it, it, it's, a very, it's very tricky. I like to say it's a science, but in actual fact, it's a non-science. It's like experience goes so far. Yeah, no, that, that was what I was going to actually ask you next, which is like how do you set up your training blocks? I mean, just broadly speaking, right? Like there's so many – I mean, you're just like constantly traveling and competing that like – do you have much time to develop new technique or is it just like off season jam as much technique work and skill work and then kind of like maintain like the mental sharpness and like the physical health to be able to compete or, or how do you think about it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually very, very tricky. And like I tend to leave the, the training stuff to, to the experts cause they, you know, they, they know what they're doing, but as far as technique goes, um, being a, uh, uh, fascinated by biomechanics myself. I had a technique that created injuries and wasn't particularly great. I went back to the drawing board towards the end of my career and rebuilt my whole technique. Um, which is, and I actually hit the ball way harder. crazy better. risky and scary, right? Like I'm yeah. like, I just knowing like, again, like you change your grip. That's like, you lose a lot of muscle memory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. But I had no choice because I was injured. And also because I realized well, I'm injured, I'm a little bit slower than I used to be, and these guys are hitting the ball harder, way harder. So I, I decided I had to do something about it, and, and it took me probably a couple of years to get everything right. I actually hit the ball way better than than, than I used to. I know, so I, was like, I can't move and I don't focus as well as I used to, of course, but uh, uh, but there was I had to take time off. But for most – so when I have a an issue with Coco or a player and I say, like, if you want to fix this – we, we do have to have some time off. And the, the thing that I've found is that the players I've worked with, Mark Filipousis, Greg Rosetsky, um, particularly, uh, and Coco, they've been my long-term players. Uh, we've all done well. All, actually, two of them have got this final US Open. Um, and Coco got the semifinal last year. So they've been successful players. They're incredibly talented. I mean, they pick things up like that. And it's, it's surprising where... You know, a junior might take weeks and months and years to pick something up. They can pick things up within a week or two weeks. And, and I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. I say, well, they're, they're, they're the best right. talented players in the yeah. world for, for a reason. You yeah. know, they can pick things up. But some things they, they can't and you've just got to chip away at. Some things, it's just the way their body is built. And you just say, well, you just can't. They, they're just not going to move that way and I can't expect them to move that way. Um, but... Um, it's it's a real skill and you have to do as i said a majority of work right at the end of the year november but you know the the davis cup final or the atp world tour finals is in mid-november so the davis cup final is usually is after that the women is mid-october so women can have a bit more time off it's a better it's a better schedule and it's it's one of these things that the players and the men's have been arguing about for years about give us some more rest give us some more time off so the atp did do that they said okay we're going to make the season two weeks shorter so what did the players do? They just went off and played exhibition matches and made loads of money and, <laughs> and they played yeah. nonstop for two weeks anyway. So yeah. they went, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And so you mentioned nutrition. So the original kind of old school style, carb loading, carb loading, carb loading. Um, and obviously as you, you've been following this, you know, just a broader nutrition space, a lot of interesting developments and perhaps hype around a ketogenic diet 
I mean, recently there's been a lot of discussion, maybe not into the athletic performance perspective, but people within the keto diet are talking about doing a carnivore diet, just only eating meat products, which is, you know, more on the extreme side. I don't know if you've seen some of that stuff. Um, curious to see if um, some of the nutrition interventions have been in play in the tennis world. Um, a lot of the, again, like maybe it's not even like sticking to one diet throughout the entire year. The notion of cycling diets or periodizing diets for different types of training or different types of matches. Curious to see how much nutrition has evolved uh, over the over the you know last couple of decades. Yeah, well, as you said, it was carb loading. That was that was what it was all about, and uh, it got to the stage. Well, there was um, there was a lot of players hitting the gym. I mean, if you remember Andre Agassi coming out one, at, at one stage, and he was just muscle bound. Uh, it, it well, it kind of worked for him, I suppose, because he, he got him in the gym. He's just super talented. He got away with a lot of stuff, anyway. But you know, all of a sudden, the protein you know was pumped up to ridic- ridiculous. So there was carb loading. There was, uh, you know, and and uh, then there was protein, and I remember talking to Rod Rod Laver, um, who was who's the only man who's won the Grand Slams, which is all four four of, of the Grand Slams: uh, Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon, U.S. Open. He's he's won all four, four of those in a, in one year twice. Only man to do that. Now he used to travel everywhere, and I said I I talked to him because I'm very curious about this because. I'm very interested in you know the low carb diet, the keto keto diet, which I which I did for a good nine months recently, and then of course all all the products, including yourself, have been uh, have been coming out and I've been testing. And I and I said to him, "What did you eat?" I said, "What did you eat?" And he, and I said, "You used to play these exhibition matches. He was a pro. He was one of these guys that played five sets every night. They went to another place. They played five sets and they'd move on." And I said, "I said." You know what did you eat? And did you, you know nutrition? Said, well, we didn't have nutrition. We just we ate basically we ate eggs, uh, we had butter, we had eggs, uh, we had and we had steak and we had we had we had meat and uh, and some and some vegetables. And I sort of thought to myself, I thought, that's pretty low that, carb. That's pretty keto. That's pretty keto, isn't yeah. it? And and, and he said, he said, I said, did you ever get tired? He said, never. I said, I always felt great. <laughs> And Bjorn Borg said the same thing. He used to practice every day for five sets before Wimbledon. He never played a lead-up tournament. He won five Wimbledons in a row. And I said to Borgie, I said, because uh, I played with him, I'd never actually played him on the tour. He's just a little bit older than me. And I said to him, what did you used to do? Did you play five sets every day? He said, yeah, we used to play, I used to play uh, at least five sets, probably seven sets a day. A five, one five-set match, then another couple of sets in the afternoon. I was like, you're joking me. I said, what did you, what did you eat? What did you do? He said, same thing as I always did. I said I had just a steak and and some maybe some potatoes and uh, uh, steak and vegetables and and that was about it. And and, and that, uh, that was again. I was thinking, you're kidding me. How can you possibly recover from that? But it's a kind of a keto diet in a way. And and and, and Rod Laver said, I said, why'd you eat meat? Why'd you that? Why is that all you ate? He said because meat was cheap back then. That's uh, meat was actually pretty cheap. So that was the only thing we could afford to eat. So we had meat and we had eggs. And at night we had a couple of beers, and I cooked my own steak. I said I cook a great steak. I still do. I still my friends come over, and they think I cook the best steak in town. And that's that's what he had. And it's kind of keto, isn't it? Funny how how it goes goes around. Yeah, it's kind of wild. I mean, it's interesting here because again, like I think the dogma in, in the last like 20, 30 years was like carb load, carb load, carb load. It was interesting to hear that that the recovery side where some of the benefits of a ketogenic diet that's been shown in literature is anti-inflammatory. Some of these effects that might have been showing up and how this guy has such crazy stamina. I mean, that's, 
I mean, seven sets on a daily basis is no joke. I mean, that's four or five hours on the court. I mean, easy, right? I mean, yeah. that's just a lot of that's a lot of anaerobic aerobic load. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, and um, but you know, obviously. You know, for, for me, as, as curiosity, I mean, I went... Uh, yeah, did, you, you know, did, did that gluten. spark you to try that? Like, uh, curious to hear about your nutrition adventure. Obviously, I want to hear yeah. about your experience with our keto nester. But yeah, just curious to hear about, um, you know, what were your personal explorations and was, you know, what were your thoughts on all the different things you've tried? Yeah. Well, I've always... My my my, my motto really is, is to try and just try everything and try and be as good as you possibly can be. So that's why... You know, I got this the sports psychologist ahead of my time. That's why I got the amino acid testing ahead of my time. That's why, you know, I got the full time trainer, ahead. and 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 I've always tried to ex- experiment and try try stuff. This this fine stuff that actually really works. So, um, carbo load didn't work for me. I just couldn't get out of bed. I mean, I just had pasta, pasta, whatever. I couldn't get out of bed. I just wake up with, I, I couldn't move. So I realized something's gone wrong here. So then I went gluten-free and I actually lost a lot of weight. And I thought, actually, that kind of works, which means I was kind of cutting out carbs, wasn't I? I was really cutting out faster accidentally. Um, and then the sort of, you know, I, I, um, the older I've got, um, you know, my joints and my muscles. I've had injuries. I'm old. I've beaten the hell out of my body for 40 years on the, competitively on the court. And and one, my son said to me, I got a tennis academy in Australia, and he said to me, he said, uh, you know, uh, a friend of ours, Rich, he, he said, um, you know, he's diabetic. And I said, what? I said, he's the fittest kid I've ever seen. He said, yeah, but he, he doesn't take any insulin anymore. And he feels great. And he runs around and he's and his muscles and he goes to the gym. And I'm like, hold on. He said, Dad, you should get on that because he's, his joints feel really good. It's, a, it's called a keto diet, a ketogenic diet. And I was like, I, okay, i got to explore this. He said, give him a call. So I gave him a call. And I said, what? You know, first of all, he said, yeah, i got a rare diabetes thing. I said, I'm super fit, but I don't take any insulin uh, I don't even bother checking myself anymore. I do everything that I can still do. I actually do more. I feel better. And my joints don't ache. My muscles recover. And I'm like, I need to hear more about this. And that was the, that was the ketogenic diet. So I went on it because everything freaking well ached. Uh, sorry, I was swearing to people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, how but, many years ago was this? I'm actually curious in terms of timing. Only a couple of years ago. Yeah, okay. Only, yeah, yeah, keto so, has really come on and been a huge increase in interest. So it makes sense in terms of timing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so it was. Uh, you know, I found that worked. I, I didn't really have the keto flu or any of that sort of stuff, but uh, you know, I felt it worked. I felt I, trying to get the right balance with water, salt, and and the oils was a, was was tricky for me. Sometimes I sort of feel a bit queasy and whatever, and I realized I was dehydrated. Dehydration was. I sweat a lot anyway, so dehydration was a big issue. I had to get that right. That was important. So, um, electrolytes, uh, and and then. And then, um, of course, I, kept, I heard about these the, the ketone supplements, um, and I couldn't believe it. I said, and I, I had to pinch my somebody told me about this. I said, "You're joking me, right? They've actually got actually, people are making this stuff that, that mimics the, the what your body makes." I couldn't believe it. I sort of just got unbelievably excited. So, I've been on a you know ex- experimenting, trying trying different things, including your product, which I think is fantastic. Um, you know, doing blending. Uh, because I'm a, a high um, uh, energy out, output, I'm quite muscular and I sweat a real lot. I've, I've, I had to sort of work out, you know, I was traveling, playing ex- exhibition matches and training with Coco and whatever, and I was just pricking my finger all the time. Like, what are you doing? So I'm just testing, I'm testing. Um, I found that 
I, I really burnt through the ketones very quickly, uh, and they didn't, not necessarily your product, because that was interesting. That's why we, that's how we got in touch, because yeah. I was like, ah, something is going actually going to last more than an hour. Yeah. I, and yeah, I don't I'm really, actually curious, like, I, how are you I, testing? I mean, I mean just, just, yeah, I mean, just to give you, a, uh, just to give people a broad context, like, when you're eating a ketogenic diet, like, what were your blood ketone levels? Um, well, gee, I've, I've kind of forgotten half half of them, but there were, um, you know, I got up to, gee, what is it, point, uh, point 0.1 millimolar, is it? Uh, yeah, point, point 0.1 is, like, very, very minimal, right? Like, point, well, yeah, so, like, point 0.1 is, like, if you're quite minimal. Like, 1.0 yeah. so is, like, pretty nutritionally ketosis. 1.0, 1.0, okay. yeah, 1.0, 1.4. So that was sort of what I was what I was around about. Okay, that's, um, that's, that's legit. I mean, that's legit. You're, you're full, you're, that's classically yeah. ketogenic. Yeah. Now, I found it really difficult, first of all, to stay there for, for a long, hot in training uh, and just generally traveling and everything. It's just a, a diet that I found really quite quite tricky. So, you know, I've learned the tips. Um, so I would say I'm not really on a keto diet anymore. I'm on a low-carb diet. And for various for things I won't go go into, but I, I've got a pretty much I, I've got a form of adrenal uh, adrenal fatigue from just playing, competing, traveling for forty years. And so now I've been told, uh, I've been advised medically to make sure that I'm eating eating enough and eating before bed and eating as soon as I get up to make sure that I have my liver's got glycogen in it and, and I don't go start burning up. My uh, using my uh, my adrenals, so um, so I don't burn it up by by mid afternoon. So it's it's a fine trying to find find the balance. So I decided to go on the low carb diet, but by by using the product, I could go in to ketosis a couple of times a day. So I I, I would pound. Uh, I had to get used to your product, but I, I would I would have so sort of half of it and then half a mix and then a full one and, and mix it backwards and forwards and try and find the right taste. And I do this twice a day, and it's it's un, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I got to say, people look at me and go, "What are you do? What have you been doing?" I say, "I don't actually do that much. You know, I play a little bit of tennis. I go to the gym. I do you know gyrotonics or yoga or Feldenkrais to keep my body loose. Uh, I don't do a lot." I say, "No, you're hitting the gym every day. You must be hit pounding the gym. Look at you." I said, "No." And I, I sort of, if they're really interested, I go, "Well, I take ketones." They go, "So you know, the usual response. What's that?" Or, or some people go, oh, I've heard about that. What's that about? Or some people just, you know, so, so it, it's it's ongoing. But it's, as I said, tennis community is picking it up a little bit. There's, I know there's quite a few, there's quite a few players who are using it, but certain players, because of the drug testing, are so strict. If it doesn't have a WADA, you know, approval or a, a sport, um, what is it called? Um, yeah, safe for sport, certified for sport. Safe, yeah, yeah. So that's really important for the players because the tennis is probably, if not right, the, the most strict as far as drug testing. And, and I know that I know that ketones, but I can't. I, you know, if the, if it doesn't have that stamp on it, a lot of players sort of won't go near it. So, and I actually, in fact, I'm really curious to, to know from you because this is one of the issues when I contacted you. I said, you know, how does it work with the esters and your product? Is it a, is it a food? Is it do you get a stamp? Do you get how does that work? Because I. I I'd really like to pass that on to something. Yeah, to yeah, no, it it is NSF certified for sport. It's regulated as a food, and it's uh, it's water compliant. Um, so you know, some of the more recent high profile 
uh, sort of more public use cases has been a third of the Grand Tour uh, cycling teams were customers this past Tour de France. Um, and actually part of the original development of the Keto Nester in the DARPA program was that part of the mandate of the program was to make this go through FDA as a food. Um, so... Yeah, if you actually go to at the NSF website, you can actually search for human ketone. You'll find our the official little NSF certified for sport uh, little category. And I think I know just knowing that, you know, a lot of the original funding came from UK sport and our research lead, Brianna Stubbs, who wrote for Great Britain, it was really important for her personally, just knowing how much athletes put into their career that you just cannot justify anyone getting flagged that jeopardizes their career. I mean, that's 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 like the worst thing we'd want to do. So hopefully that hopes gets us on the record of the switch is that, you know, it's water compliant, NSF survive for sports, regulated as a food, it's not a drug, not a supplement. It's actually probably safer than like most supplements because it actually is a food ingredient. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, um, your, your product might be an uh, exception. The others... Probably not, and they're popping up everywhere. I mean, I just walked into GNC today to to get a little funnel to put, to put the product. But and and there it was there's all these ketones popping up, and I kept looking at the back and saying, you know, there's not many of them have a sort of uh, a water yeah. approved. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's and it's, right. And, and I don't know, you know, play, if you don't know what's exactly what's in it, a professional athlete is not going to touch it. So yeah, stay away so from it. So yeah. that's why I think it's slow getting into tennis, and I also think. From uh, because of the traditions in tennis, it's the, this this element is just it's creeping in and it'll be it's it's going it's, it's a little slow, but I'm convinced that that uh, every athlete, almost every athlete in the world, will be will be taking ketones. I mean, it's it, it'd be mad not to. I mean, they, they all want an edge, don't they? Yeah. And it's a legal edge. <laughs> I think they're ab- absolutely mental the not to, and I think we'll be seeing it. It's creeping in, and I think we'll see it more and more. But the traditional uh, nutritionists just don't don't know it, don't understand it, don't believe in it, don't see enough, don't see enough uh, scientific proof. But you know, it'll come. It's coming, and people they'll realise it. So, you know, the people, the professional athletes who are, are listening to this or who know the product, they get they're getting an edge right right yeah. now. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think you know that's what we're working on, just doing more on the research side, making sure we just do good science. At the end of the day, the truth comes out, the science comes out, and I think that's what we just focus on. And obviously, it's great to hear like that positive feedback, and you know, just internally, we just you know hear good results, and that's you know makes us proud of what we do. I mean, but it is also interesting to hear that there's a lot of like ketone salts, basically other types of exogenous ketones that aren't water compliant or don't have as much data that are out there. So it is going to be, I think, a big category. I don't think, you know, I think we're relatively lucky and unique having the IP around the ketone ester, which has the most validated proof and data. But there are interesting, you know, things going on the broader sports nutrition because it's something that's so interesting physiologically. Um, and I think just looking for, I mean, you've seen a lot of the cutting edge stuff. I mean, that seems to be something that you pride yourself in. What do you seem see that seems to be some of the future research direction that you're personally most excited about? Um, like, again, I think we see in the cycling world that is very metrics driven, uh, you know, things like power meters, things like, um, you know, tracking their lactic acid threshold because they like are, are doing mountain climbs and they can measure what 300 watts will produce in terms of lactate, 400 watts will produce in lactate. Because um, I think, I think it's, a, it's much more of a 
arguably simple sport because you're just like you on a bike producing output tennis obviously a lot of technique style dynamic between a one on one sort of match do you see that similar characteristic around the quantification of that sport happening or do you feel like it's much more of like an animalistic intuitive sport um what are your yeah. what are your thoughts there yeah it's interesting isn't it because uh you know having uh coco's nutritionist here this week and uh, you know, I, I, I had to be honest. I said, listen, um, Coco's got to play tomorrow. Does she have enough fuel in her? Um, you know, and then she said, well, yeah, well, you know, well, she, she should have plenty. I said, because you realize tomorrow the match could be 45 minutes and it's stinking hot, 45 minutes, or it could be three hours. It could be more than three hours. We don't know how long the match is, is going to go for. We don't know the heat from, from day to day. We don't know that. We can't plan anything. And I said, I said, going back to where I was saying, the, the, you've got to be so adjustable. You could plan 24 hours in advance or 48 hours, but that's just about it. You do a general schedule, uh, but it's not like a bike where you know exactly what, how the gradient of that hill is on, on Tour de France. And you know exactly what speed you should be hitting, and you know exactly how many calories you should be hitting, uh, assuming that you know you have to maneuver around a few, a few uh, uh, other bikes. But you basically know exactly what your output is. In, in tennis, you don't know what your output is. You don't know if you're hitting, if you serve well, you only hit, you hit, uh, you know, seventy percent of your ser- first serves in. So that means you only have to hit, you know, thirty percent of second serves. Now, if you serve badly, you have to hit one first serve and a second serve. That's extra output as well. So it's 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 one of those really really tricky sports, and where science is is creeping in, and we know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's very fully in that. It's it's mainly based around trying to recover, and and that's that'll be that'll continue to be that way. And then so, and this is why I'm very excited about about, about ketones because they, there's no doubt there's an there's a an huge anti-inflammatory element to it uh, and there's other there's other products out there who will claim all this various things I'm not talking about ketones i'm just talking about things that will help you anti-inflammatory whether it's this uh uh curcumin stuff that i've got here in my drawer that or, or whatever it happens to be uh mega hydrates are another product that i absolutely swear by um and that's uh you know uh, it softens the cell membrane helps you absorb nutrients and get rid of toxins and the combination of these things, I think, are, 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 is where it's, where tennis is going to be in the, in the future. And and um, you know whether the ice baths work, uh, the cryo these cryotherapy units that go to some tournaments, so players go into the cryotherapy. Um, so the French Tennis Association have a couple of uh, cryotherapy units that players can go straight in there after matches. Most of the time, most of the places is uh, is ice baths. We have got an ice bath there, the locker room. Today, uh, two two of them at Wimbledon, they have about six or seven. It's a bit different from my day, one ice pack. They have six or seven baths in there. So you know that's um, tennis is certainly getting there, but it's uh, it's just very hard to sort of judge, and and emotionally, and and you got jet lag, you got different foods to deal with, uh, all that, all that sort of stuff. And um, you know you wake, turn up to turn up, you fly across the other side of the world, and you get you catch a a cold in the in the plane, and then you're out for a week, and then you can't train properly the next week. You know, it's so it's one of those it's one of those crazy sports that makes it very very tricky. Right, especially if you have one individual, right? With a team sport, you lose a key player, you still have four or five. You know, depending on the, on the sport, you still have other players. But your player, like you, are down. Like you, 
you are down. Like there's no other crush to, to rely on. One thing that you mentioned that was interesting was that a lot of cryotherapy have, has, uh, obviously, I think a lot of sports and folks that we've been, you know, engaging with a lot of interest on hot saunas. I mean, you got the cold, you got the heat. Has that been something of interest? Have you looked into that? Yeah, I think they're great. Uh, there's, there's no doubts about that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in it. I, I think I think what will happen, um, there'll be, um, there's various mats uh, and certain units that you, you'll be able to rest on and lie on. I'm surprised actually that, that, that players, I know a couple of players have been traveling with certain uh, magnetic or uh, vascular type of mats that help, you know, throughout the night doing that, that sort of stuff. Uh, there's different units, you know, boots that you put on moon boots, you know, the, the, the vascular stuff, but the stuff that the players will, players will lie on. Um, I'm very interested in a, in a, in a product that, um, that's come out from, uh, from, from Russia. They use the, uh, the winter, winter Olympic team, Porsche, the guy developed uh, an engineer from Porsche developed a motor that's basically underneath a bed that vibrates the, this bed. And, uh, it said they've had incredible success with the, uh, with their athletes. So that unit's coming coming out. That's uh, a friend of mine's going to bring it into the UK to to try. It's thirty thirty forty thousand dollars, but you know ten. Uh, well, if you got if you've got a Premier League football team like Chelsea or yeah, Manchester, I mean those guys have crazy budgets. Yeah, absolutely. And, why not? And, and what's why the theory of mechanism? Like you you shake when you're sleeping, and and what's the theory of mechanism? Uh, uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'm a <laughs> myself, but it, it, it's a vibration. It's a form a form of vibration uh, that 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 works. And you lie on it for 15, 10, 15 minutes, twenty minutes. Um, so you know that's I think that's that'll continue. To to, uh, to to come into to tennis and sport as well. Um, the uh, the grounding mats. I think that people. You know. I think I, I've used them. I think they're pretty good. I think they've been. I know they've been used by certainly Tour de France athletes. Something that'll help you recover while you're doing nothing. You know, re- while you're sleeping. Help you help you to recover. So I think, and that's that's what you know your product does, and that's what certain diets do. It's like this is an anti-inflammatory. This helps me recover. I wake up in the morning and I feel better. You know, there can be other things that add on to that. Um, that's that's a natural thing, and and that's a and it's, and it's a, not every everybody's the same as well. And that's what I've particularly found with athletes or myself is that certain things will work. Somebody will swear by this product here. You take that and you'll recover. Uh, somebody will say no, no, this one's better. And and how do you know? You, I mean, this is this is the industry that we're in. We're a billion dollar industry. How do we know what actually works? And and what I've found um, that is actually very, uh, that's been very helpful for me is is actually going to a, a therapist, a, a, somebody who does uh, nutritional muscle testing therapy. therapy. So, uh, um, they, if you the kinesiology, where you where they, you put a they can they can put a, a product on you on your chest or you hold it and you see if your muscles go go weak, if it actually affects you in, in some 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 level. I, I think that that's been a that saved me a, a lot of money, in actual fact, because <laughs> I bring all my products to this lady and she puts them on me and she tests me. She said, no, oh, that's no good. Yep, that's good, that's good, that's, or oh, this is really good. And she'll test, say, okay, this will, you know, AM or PM, uh, and she'll test, find out, okay, take this product in the morning, this is gonna be really good for you. Take this product at night, this is really good for you. That one's no good, that one's no good. And the products that have everything in them, you know, I just pull up something like this and it's, you know that's got a that's got a hundred different things in this this yeah. product. All you need is one that doesn't work for you, and that you might as well just throw it out. 
you know, and just one thing. So I tend to stay away from the products that have loads of stuff in them, even though majority of it is good. There's always one or two little things that don't work for you, and it's actually going to affect your body, and it's going to, it's going to throw it off balance. So, so I use I use this uh, this lady in London, but they're they're, they're around. You can there's different uh, different people who do different things. There's a, uh, a physio. I wouldn't say physio. There's a thing called P PDTR, which is uh, deep tendon reflex, which is a fantastic system of uh, checking out your body, going through your body, balancing everything out and working out where injuries are or what nutrition works for you, what doesn't. Uh, for instance, I had an injury. I kept pulling my quad muscle and and I went to the therapist and they went, hey, you keep pulling your quad muscles. I said, when, when did you do it? I said, I did it in April. I did it in March here and then I did it in uh, December here. And they said, oh, wintertime. I said, and they went out, went out, they got a cold bottle of drink they put it on my body and my muscle, my arm just went boom, completely. My leg just muscle would just went complete weak. I said, "You're allergic to cold." I said, "Well, being Australian, I probably am." <laughs> so they rebalanced me, and then no problems. So I, I literally stopped pulling the muscle. And so you know, all these little things are, are quite fascinating, and I'm always tend to experiment. But that's been that's been a money saver for me, if nothing else. Oh, 100. I mean, I think I can agree ketones, that. By the way, ketones are, ketones are good. <laughs> well, good to hear. I mean, I think I can just imagine that absolutely there's some component around genetics or environmental stressors that dictates how we respond to certain interventions. And it sounds like you found a particular method to test all these things in a way that doesn't mean like you just buying all this stuff. So I'm actually curious. So like, like a, a certain intervention, they'll basically try it on you and they'll just like, and the therapist will dictate or understand like your muscle response. And through that muscle response, you can judge whether this is helpful, neutral, or detrimental to your muscle performance. Basically, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know exactly how they do it. I've got a basic idea of it, but uh, uh, and it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, it's maybe not as scientific. Some of the, the the medics might go, "Oh, that's just hocus pocus," but I'm not so. I'm not so sure. I mean, even if it is almost, if it's pretty accurate that's good enough that's good enough for me than than to waste a whole lot of money on stuff that i don't really need yeah. my body doesn't really want yeah no it, i mean it seems sensible at least to have some sort of structure to figure out what's working for you or not right like i guess like the gold standard would be just like do like i guess placebo control yourself with an intervention and then see how you respond and maybe post facto measure it but that's obviously complicated and like what is if that's a gold standard what is like the most efficient way to get to the, some some sort of like result that you can apply to you know your practice or or, or your players etc. So yeah, I mean it's all about finding efficiency of what works for you given the use case or goals that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's that's right. You got the scientific brain going, <laughs> going there. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's trying to find out what works for you. I mean, what does what does work for you? And we it's. So much guesswork is going on, and I do it as well. I hear about something, and I go out and I buy that. That's going to be fantastic. A month later, I go, yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> or, wow, yeah, it did work. Uh, you know, so it's it's uh, there's a lot of guesswork going on. Uh, you know, I do have, test my bloods all the time and my hormones and all that sort of stuff. I always have. Uh, that helps. There's no doubt that that helps. I think it's being there's a little bit of science, well, quite a bit of science involved in that, as do, as do my my players um, and and Coco particularly. But um, you know, sometimes um, sometimes you don't really know. It's a bit of a guesswork, I suppose. Yeah, no. I mean, I think I think 
science and engineering is about quantifying and optimizing things you can measure. But I think it's overly simplistic or overly, uh, uh, yeah, simplifying to just say, hey, everything is measurable. And I think there's definitely certain human qualities that are kind of intangible, right? Like, why is one player more mentally resilient than another player? Like, like it's it's hard to measure like courage or the you know, amount of pain you can withstand. Maybe you can maybe you can measure that, but like kind of these intangible human aspects. And I think maybe technology can get to a point where you can actually start measuring some of those kind of soft metrics. Uh, but until then, it is about that human experience, that human judgment. How do we how do we optimize and get into a player's brain to help them achieve uh, you know greatness? Really, right? Yeah, and I think I think a lot of this. I mean, this genetics is a, is a massive genetics. No doubt, genetics is huge in in sport. But you know, you you got to pick the right parents. You know, it's sometimes you just That's funny. You know, you you know what I mean. It's 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 uh, some people are just are born born that way. But um, you you there are just certain things that you can do um, that we know that we can do that can that can prove an athlete or prove them improve them mentally. And you you do, you do those, and there's the extra things. You, I suppose you can't really quantify necessarily. It's down to the individual. But we know that, you know, if you eat bad food, if you're having fried food, or if you don't stretch, you don't warm, cool down. You know, all that that sort of stuff. That you know, you're more susceptible to injury if you start all of a sudden pound up from doing uh, your know, one hour a day of tennis to three hours a day of tennis within two weeks. There's a chance that yeah. it's going to be injured. So we know those sort of things. So you you, you try and keep stick to certain limitations and certain certain guide, guidelines is what, is what I'm looking for. Um, uh, and the rest, particularly in tennis, is a little bit of a you know it's experience, and that's why you tend to have experience, good experienced coaches uh, who had who were successful, and the players are looking for good experienced coaches because they know, oh you know they know they know how they can. Uh, in in some way, create some sort of format in a mad in the mad world that is tennis. It's an interesting late tennis gossip or tennis news where Serena Williams uh, she had her famous cat suit that was banned from the French Open, and I think just in the last couple of days, a player, a French player, I believe, was changing her shirt because it was like on backwards or she was sweaty on the court, and that was flagged as as as, as a warning, um, and obviously that's like quite a double standard for men and women curious to hear your thoughts on that um and and the changing i guess the etiquette of, of this sport yeah look it was it was pretty crazy i mean we're talking about the crazy hot day and one of the players as you said came on she went off to change her clothes came back realized oh she put her outfit on the wrong way and sort of you know, as she's walking up, because there's time restrictions, you can't just take all day to get changed. Otherwise, you know, you get defaulted. So she just quickly flipped the, the top around and then she got a warning for that. Look, they, they backtracked on that. They said, oh, she shouldn't have really, you know, this is not an incident, but we had to give a warning because it was part of the rules of etiquette of, of tennis. You know, whatever. It's, it, tennis is a funny sport where it's, it's actually losing quite a bit of tradition. Tennis is a traditional sport. We have... The Davis Cup, which is a men's men's international competition, home and away, it, it's uh, it's our biggest competition, uh, nation's competition. Well, they've just completely changed it all together. They've just thrown it thrown it out, all the tradition, and have made it into just a one one week event uh, uh, because they say they're losing 
interest for 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 players um, uh, for players for for the public. There's a lot of competition out there for, for other sports. I mean, my day there was there wasn't much you could watch on TV. You watch tennis and and there's you know football, basketball. That was about it. I mean, you know, there was there was wasn't that many sports. Now there's 30 channels that you can can watch sports, and so so they're losing. They believe they're losing quite a, a bit, but I, I don't I don't see that. I mean, I see particularly in the US when you see you're seeing so many good girl women players coming through in the US. It just shows clear sign that there's actually the game is really thriving. It's just a really tough sport. You know, it costs money, and it's really tough for, sport to survive in. It's not easy to make money. The average player is making, uh, you know, if you ranked 100 in the world, you're only taking away, I don't know, $300,000 a year, and you're spending 300, you know, 295 on on expenses. You know, it's it's uh, it's just it's just one of the one of those things. But it's um, there's always controversy around, uh, you know, a, a terrible incident. It just happened uh, where one of the umpire went down and talked to the Aussie kid Nick Kyrgios, who's very volatile and doesn't try sometimes, and is emotional, and he he's an incredibly talented player. Um, the umpire got down off the chair and and said gave him a pep talk, uh, which is just the most bizarre thing I think uh, one of the most bizarre things I've ever <laughs> seen in tennis. That is the, strange. The neutral the neutral chair umpire. It's not like it's a junior match where he comes down and go, "You okay, kitty? You know, you okay?" You know, would you like to take a drink? Would you need a toilet break? You know, we can start the tournament, you know, under fives or under nine. This is a professional tennis match. The guy gets down and does him a pep talk. Says, Nick, you're better than this. You can keep going. And he turns around. He was just about to throw the match. He was exhausted. He was the heat. Got to him. And and uh, he ended up pulling his act together and winning the match. The other guy, of course, is absolutely furious now. And the authorities go, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. It's like, what? You, you get angry at a girl who changes her shirt because he's dripping the sweat, but yet you let an umpire come down and give this guy all the bias? <laughs> That's tennis, wild. Tennis sometimes just, it just makes no sense. It drives me nuts sometimes. It really does the, the, the official. Term. But it's, it's, and it's kind of, I understand it's a hard tour to do because it is a circus. It's a traveling circus. It's like, you know, it's like the Rolling Stones tour, but, you know, with, 400 people traveling around the world and and it's not easy to keep keep it all running smoothly and and all the players happy because you know there's never a happy tennis player there's always something going wrong unless you held the trophy at the end of the tournament with a big check if somebody's miserable (laughs) and then you're happy for two weeks and then it's back on the grind exactly (laughs) it's a brutal sport yeah 100 percent. so as we wrap up here um you know how do people follow you i mean clearly a lot of interesting you know you know, things that are falling with yourself, your players, what's the best way for our audience to stay tuned and keep up to date with your developments and, and thoughts and your experiments here? Yeah, well, I have a website, uh, patcash.net. And um, so I, I do all sorts of stuff from, as I said, from biomechanical for tennis lessons to, uh, to blogs to nutrition stuff. Um, so it, it's a, uh, so there's, there's a bit of info on that. And then um, there's the real, the real Pat Cash uh, on Instagram and, and Twitter, I, there was a fake Pat Cash. I don't know who would who would bother. Uh, but, uh, Donald Trump is the real Donald Trump, isn't he? Is that right? Yeah. So you're at that level, I guess. Where you, I mean, it's a it's a sign of honor to have people faking to be you. Is it really? Is it re- is it really? Uh, okay, I guess maybe like... maybe not if you want to not be compared directly to Donald Trump. But again, depending on your politics, let's not get into that. But yeah, maybe. No, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Best of luck to you and Coco in, in the upcoming weeks. 
uh, hope to, you know, hope the best, best of luck and best of successes. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Pat. As always, please send my producer Zill and I feedback at podcast at hvmn.com. iTunes reviews are always appreciated. And remember, you'll score a free Sprint Mini in the process. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And talk to you soon.